Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that tackles the tough topics sometimes. And today I'm not sure it's such a tough topic, but I'm finding it extremely interesting. I was fortunate enough to just return from a visit to China yesterday. We went to Beijing and Xi'an and uh, Shanghai, and I hope I'm not butchering those names too much. And uh, one of the folks that was in my group was Dennis. Dennis, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. And um, we also have with us Britain. And Britain, welcome to the show. Thank you. Britain is uh, actually my daughter, and she was in China for much longer than I was. She was there for several months, a couple years ago. And we also have with us Rachel Burton. Rachel, thank you for joining us. Hi, Heather. It's great to be here. Rachel is from Project 2049 Institute. That's a nonprofit research institute dedicated to realizing a more secure Asia by 2049. What does that mean, Rachel, a more secure Asia? Well, I think a more secure Asia is really um, can be formulated by what those in Asia want. Um, but ideally for our institution, it's, it's looking at um, U.S. U.S. allied partnerships in the region. Um, how can we strengthen those partnerships, and how can the United States and our allies and partners in the Asia Pacific region work together um, to create a you know a rule international rules based order um, that provides peace and stability and you know economic prosperity for for all in the Asia region. So that sounds like a lofty goal. Um, one of the things that I would think would foster that kind of a goal would be if we kind of share as nations some of our attitudes and observations about gender and race. Am I right in that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, you absolutely right. are. One of the things that I noticed uh, were some definite differences when it comes to um, race and gender, more specifically uh, race, I think, than gender, although one of the observations that I had was that I saw almost like two groups of women. There were young women who were wearing impossibly high heels everywhere mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and and looked really spiffy, and there was a big emphasis on, and giving it on while fashion in the stores. <laughs> What, what, Rachel? Say it again. Uh, you'll see them wearing heels when they, like, climb mountains and stuff. It's very impressive. Oh, exactly. I was, climb, I was in the Great Wall of China climbing, and there were these young women wearing these, like, four-inch heels climbing that wall. And I was just <laughs> hanging on to the handrail, you know, huffing and puffing, you know, and my, my, my tenny runners thinking, how are they doing this? You know, amazing. But then there was also, it seemed to me, an older and poorer group of women who were basically pushing the brooms, pushing the the squeegee mops, pushing the, you know, is was that just because where I went or is there kind of a divide in uh, age among uh, and occupations and uh, among women in China? Well, I think it's not just age, I think it's socioeconomic standing. Mm-hmm. Um because a lot of the older women who are pushing the brooms and um, doing more of the manual labor stuff, they're doing it because they need the income. And the women that you see walking around in high heels, you know, you probably saw that in the big cities mostly. Yes. Um, And, you know, they're after a different sort of socioeconomic goal than the older people. Um, but one of the things I really noticed about women when I was in China was that they don't seem to have the same gender-specific roles that we have in America. Like going to construction sites, you know, the cities are constantly being built. Um, you see a lot of women, actually, in hard hats on the construction sites, and you don't really see that at all here. Huh. Um, we well, see it a little bit. I don't know, I'm thinking like road economic. and things. But, yeah. Dennis, did mm. you see that? Well, I think what, what I observed was uh, perhaps similar to what you're saying there. 
I noticed that uh, some of the managerial roles, I would see more women. Unfortunately, I didn't observe the uh, construction sites. Uh, what would the, the road work look like? There were a lot of men, say, doing the uh, stacking, for instance, of flowers, and, 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 and there was a cross-pollination of, I think, the uh, men and women uh, planting flowers, which I'm not used to seeing that here in the States. But it was mm-hmm. interesting to see how many ladies were in, in uh, let's say, dress suits, that were uh, maybe in higher roles than, than I'm used to seeing here in the States at this point in their economic growth. I have it, an it, interesting, it was different than what I expected. I have an interesting perspective on, on what it is to be a woman in, in China. I mean, my experiences, um, you know, dating back to when I studied in China, um, and then I actually worked and I taught at a, a rural middle school in Yunnan province in a, in a little village called Laoying. And, um, you know, when you're there for two years and, and largely the teachers who are at this like public middle school are women. Um, and I think you see, um, you see that, you see that the, the sort of like trials and tribulations of women in China are actually very similar to the challenges that women face in America and in other societies um, around the world. I don't think it's, it's as unique to China. Um, but I think in terms of the divide between the two different types of women, um, I think you'll also find that there's, you know, an older set of women um, who, who are also enjoying wearing heels and, and, and going out and having fun. And I think, I think trying to maintain a perspective that they're, they're not so different from, from, you know, the women that you and I are here in America. Um, and I think that's important to sort of like keep into context. I was impressed with the level of uh, Western clothing influences, especially amongst the young ladies. Uh, You you saw fewer, quote-unquote, traditional wear, and and, and certainly there was little deviation from the clothing I see here with the young people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. One of the things that I noticed with interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Rachel. Oh, I was going to say, on talking about clothes, um, I, I found that, whenever I wore something that maybe showed my shoulders that I would get um, like some comments from, from my, from my coworkers or my local teachers that like I was, you know, you know, they would tease me about my shoulders being shown, but I was wearing whenever, but they would sometimes go to class wearing maybe like shorts or um, skirts that would go above the knee. But like any time that my shoulders were showing, it was a really big deal. Um, so I thought that was really a peculiar thing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I noticed girls, that. I saw some of the shorts are very short, extremely short. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I noticed that also. Like a lot of my friend, female friends there, would wear really, really short shorts. But if I wore a V-cut shirt that maybe showed off a little bit of cleavage, everybody thought that was really, really risque. And I actually had several people ask me if I knew my shirt was that low. <laughs> no, who knew that? <laughs> yeah, it's How really that interesting, happen? and that's something that just um, comes out of you know the, the makeup of of their society and and their you know cultures. Not wouldn't say that's so much a culture thing as it is you know societal norms that you see in China. But um, it is a funny thing. I think sexuality and what is what is sexy and what is cute um, have very different meanings in America than than in China. I, I think we'll have to concur on that. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, Dennis, are you on a, um, a a handheld or are you on a speakerphone? No, no, no it's just a regular. I've taken the speakerphone off. Yeah, yeah, because it's we're getting a, it's a little hard to understand you. Um, one of the things that I also noticed is that there seem the the young women um, seem to really. Um, you know, we, t- we talked about the, the heels and everything, but they seem to really like the short skirts. I think I saw more young women in short, short skirts than I did in pants in China. But the older women seem- that I saw seemed to dress more, you know, conservatively. But I guess that's true just about anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about, you know, some of the notes that I made um, uh, in general about women were children. Of course, we saw, I don't know if you noticed this, Dennis, but uh, Kathy and I were talking about this. We saw many children, well, not many, many children, but of the children that we did see, most of them were babies or toddlers, 
We didn't really, yes, other than one. Like was, uh, oh, sorry. Go I ahead. was going to say, that looked like we were on a sudden boom in the uh, childbirth. It looked like there was a, a period of maybe recession with childbirth, and all of a sudden a big boom. I would agree. Yeah, yeah, but we, other than one small school group, we didn't really see any um, older children or pre-adolescent children. Um, what, what, you know, and one of the things that our uh, associates were talking about in China, Rachel, was that the, the mm-hmm. recent push to have two children. And I noticed in uh, yesterday's China Daily that I grabbed on getting on the airplane, there's an article mm-hmm. there about the government encouraging um, young people of childbearing age to have two children um, and mm-hmm. that there's some resistance to that. And they're also encouraging the parents of childbearing children to encourage their children to reproduce. That's mm-hmm. relatively new. What and 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 Dennis, did you hear this? Our first tour guide was named Ivy, and she was probably forty-ish, and she had a ten-year-old daughter. And at one point, she was talking about how how um, having children is really inconvenient, and it's really hard, and she couldn't imagine wanting more than one. Uh, and it almost sounded like she couldn't really imagine having the one. Did you hear that part, Dennis? I heard some of that, and it, and it uh, suddenly I found a, a reflection even on my own self. If I moved away, say, from the countryside, I grew up in Mississippi, and I moved suddenly to Seattle, which is my reality, then I don't have that village to help support that child rearing and with both parents now working. Uh, I can imagine it would be extremely taxing on, uh, say, a, a mother now to say, I'll have two children. Mm-hmm. But I would be... Well, I think- more curious of the social norms by not having two versus just one. What happens over a 20-year period of study in that? Well, I think yeah. one thing to really, really, one thing to really remember is that the Chinese Communist Party has really, um, through through in, through means of like wanting to control the level of the population within the country, um, the the Chinese Communist Party has long has long been controlling the amount of children that that women or families can have. I mean. Um, I think it's important to like remember like the, the, through the one-child policy, you know, there was a lot of forced sterilizations. There was a lot of forced abortions. Um, a lot of children were abandoned. A lot of children, um, you know, were 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 left. And um, and I think what you see now with with the with the two-child policy um, is I think there is excitement. I think when I I went back to the village I was teaching at, and um, it was after you know the the two-child policy um, was announced, and actually some of my teachers had had already like started thinking about wanting to have their second child, and and they were maybe in their late thirties. And so I think I think there's something to to be said about um, women in China who have been um, really controlled by the state and, and by the party to um, to limit how many children they're allowed to have. Um, I will give a small caveat that in the rural in the rural countryside, they they were a little bit more lenient on the number of children that families could have. Um, they had a policy where if um, if you had a sibling, then then you can only have one child. But if you were an only child, then you can have two children. Um, so there there were um, some leniencies that you, you saw in the in the more rural areas than you did in the cities um, in terms of like the one child policy. But I think I think children in China is is just a tricky thing because you have to remember that the societies and the communities and in some ways have really been learned or trained that, that you know having children can be a burden you have to put them through school like living in China is difficult it is a large population and so you do see those sentiments in in the big cities uh, where families really only want one child um, and not more so well and Br- Britain I think you've mentioned the difference in the countryside as well didn't you yeah um I I don't know if this is true or not, but one of my friends while I was there told me that after a woman had a child, and this might have been several years ago or many, many years ago, um, that child could not get a birth certificate until the woman had been sterilized. Or uh, I don't know what the polite way to say that is. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen that, Rachel? Um, I haven't personally seen it Um but you hear um, a lot of stories, and you hear stories of women who um, who do who are forced to abort, or they are forced to, um, you know, have their tubes 
tithe or men are forced to get sterile. Um, so it is a, a fact in, in you know, Chinese societies and Chinese communities that that, that has occurred. Um, is it getting better? I think it is. And I think um, I commend, you know, I commend the government and I commend the people of, of, of China for, for sort of embracing, um, you know, better opportunities moving forward and, and better opportunities for, for um, choice. So I think that's really great. So, in any conversation about many... – go ahead, Dennis. I will say it was true that I started seeing uh, parents that had maybe a child that was uh, less than five years old uh, with a second in a stroller. So that was impressive to see mm-hmm. while we were there in the cities. Mm-hmm. You're starting to see more of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In any conversation think... about children, we're we're looking oh. at it from two standpoints. One is – what society encourages, and the other one is what the individual woman wants. Mm-hmm. And it sounds to me like, um, based on Ivy's conversation, mm-hmm. that maybe the, the the state can the state can decide you can have as many children as the state wants you to to have, but it's up to the individual woman to decide whether or not that's that's going to work for her. So I, I wonder how successful all these changes in policy are ultimately when when you look at a woman and her individual uh, situation you know as Dennis mentioned you know it's all well and good to say yeah I have another child but if if you're the one that's faced with trying to figure out how to care for feed and and um mm-hmm. you know take care of that child that you know that the state can you know when i was in hong kong several young women there that i got to know um, they said that they did not plan to have children because it was too expensive to have children in Hong Kong. Mm. Um, and uh, Hong Kong's relationship with the rest of China is a little different than most places in China. Um, but I think that there's just a, a lot of economic pressures that are different in Hong Kong. Um, as far as having children, and maybe it's getting the same way in the other big cities in China now, too. So it's just not a financial possibility to have children. No. Yeah. So, you know, the state can come up with their the... policies, but, you know, it, it, it ultimately comes down to that particular woman. What, I interrupted you, Dennis. What were you going to say? Oh, no, no. I would agree. It did seem that the, the lease was a choice, so that would be uh, some form of. Uh, Western thinking that you can decide or not decide if you want to have more than one, but uh, you're right. It would come down to it. Would, it appears that it comes down to a woman's choice rather than a mandate from the government. That everyone must have two now versus just having one. But I found it interesting. I found that article in the in the China Daily yesterday pretty interesting because, wow. I mean, they just created that uh, the the freedom to have a second child back in January. And now they're printing paper, uh, articles in the paper about how parents should en- encourage their um, adult children to reproduce and have that second child. And I mean, it sounds like they're really putting some pressure on the co- on on the women, uh, you know, on the on the couples to go ahead and go for it. Boom, you know. <laughs> but not necessarily any okay. kind of economic uh, rewards for it as well. Whereas sometimes mm-hmm. it appears in states there. Uh, if you're in a poor neighborhood, it looks like there's sometimes a financial incentive uh, oh, yeah. to have another. Whereas I didn't hear any of that stated in the article. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, the other thing that well, crossed our minds, and uh, I don't know whether it was with you, Dennis, or somebody else, that we were having a conversation about this second child policy, and we said, well, how does that work? I mean, you're talking a man and a woman. So do they kind of say, okay, a woman can have two children, but a man can have more, or a man can only have two children? What happens if you were married before? Because I think Ivy was talking about a very high divorce rate right now. So how does That's that correct. work, Rachel? Um, from my understanding is that it's based on it's based on the family. Like I think I think actually. I'm going to take a step back and say I don't know the technicalities of the law. Um, I can't really speak to that. But what I will speak to is 
that um, again is kind of going back to the the fact that this is you know it's a, it's a Marxist Leninist system. You have you know the Chinese Communist Party who who really is more intertwined in the communities and the societies and the lives of the people in China than than we think. And I think when it comes to wasn't a man can have more than one child or a woman can have more than one. It wasn't mean if, if they're divorced. The, I think the, the fact is that it really has to go through the state and the state is the Chinese Communist Party. And so you have to wonder um, what are what are their goals and how, how do they view the family? Is, is the family, is a child stay with the mother if there's a divorce or does a child go with the father? And, and those are kind of questions that, um, that I don't, I don't currently have the answer to. Did you did you get that answer? Uh, you know that's an interesting question because you know well, our tour guide mentioned. Well, she <laughs> she said that when you have only children, they are selfish and self centered, um, and that you ra- you know China has raised a generation of only children, and so that they're seeing in her view a problem with getting together two only children. Uh, who then can't make the compromises and and whatever in order to create a a marriage. And so she was saying that their divorce rate right now is between 45 and 50 percent. Is that consistent with your knowledge, Rachel? Um, it's consistent. There is um, a trend of um, what they call like four dies or, or um, you know, a generation of, you know, only childs that were, you know, very spoiled growing up and, you know, lived very um, comfortable lives and were kind of doted on and given everything because, you know, their parents and their parents for them have really struggled a lot. And so there is that trend that you, that you see, especially in the big cities So you see it in um, maybe in like in Beijing, Shanghai. Um, and, and I think, and I think what you have to like like stop and think is that like maybe their their divorce rate might be forty to forty five percent, but I think the divorce rate in the United States is just about that, if not maybe slightly higher. And we've been allowed to have as many children as we want or don't want to have. And so I think what <laughs> so I think I think what it really comes down to. I, and we've been able to let the only partners. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so I don't I don't want to I don't want to speak too much about like like correlation. Um, but I think it's it's something that um, that Chinese societies and communities really need to grapple with. Like, what does it mean? Like, what does love mean? What does what do what does relationships mean? And not just romantic ones, but ones with your friends, ones with your family. Um, and how do you how do you what's your relationship with your neighbor? And I think um, I think Chinese Chinese communities continue to sort of grapple with that um, as as you know their country continues to modernize and 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 the, the Chinese Communist Party goes through reforms that um, that might affect their their communities so um i think i think it's a very it should be a very personal thing that communities need to be able to discuss because i don't think it really matters if it's because it's because children are are too snobby or something i think it's just what does relationships and love mean to a to a chinese community it'd be interesting to see then how do they handle that versus here in america i I have uh, three cousins who are only child and, and one thing i can attest to in my own family is and I'm in my 40s, is that they're very not only self-centered, but the ability to collaborate with others is not the same that I was forced to. If I have, you know, seven uh, seven in my family, then I'm forced to think outside of just me, and, and, and it is the idea of saying, how can I help the other? Uh, I was interested, uh, I thought it was interesting, though, on the plane, that there were two gentlemen um, in a, probably a collection of 20 kids that were going back to college, that it appeared to be almost like brothers, they, they have to be best friends. So maybe there is a better hope there than what I saw because they did appear to op- collaborate together better than, than what I saw when I was that age with mm-hmm. my cousins. And what you'll see in well, the sides of China as well is is that even if maybe they only have one one child or even two, their communities, like the rural villages are, are very tight-knit communities, and your cousins and or your neighbor's family and their cousins um, really become your family, and this idea of like an extended family umbrella really does exist, in, especially in, in the rural countryside of China, um, so... Yeah, I think I think there is a lot of, a great level of like collaboration um that goes along with um with families that even if they have one child because if they have to, to, if they have close knit relationships with their extended family um then that can sort of alleviate some of those pressures. So there's flaws as we get into the inner city. Go ahead, I'm sorry, Britt. 
Yeah. Written? Um, one of the things I noticed um, with my friend groups in China of Chinese people was that once you get really close to somebody, they start to call you affectionately like you were a family member. Um, so mm-hmm. a lot of my friends, their names were no longer their formal names. Once you became close friends with them, it was brother or sister, whatever their nickname is. And their nickname for me was cousin um, mm-hmm. because uh, clearly I couldn't be their brother or sister. <laughs> well, right, <laughs> difference there. Um but just forming that closeness with somebody, I think maybe there's, I, I don't know culturally, you know, but I would imagine that there's some sort of way that even though you don't have a blood relative as a sibling, you create these bonds with other people that are strong like your family. Yeah. And, so in that sense, it sounds very similar to here in America then. Because I'm in the same situation yeah. where I'm a long ways away from family, but my friends are taking me in as their own, and their their children actually call me uncle. So, uh, and in that sense, there's probably again, I think going back to that larger question, there's more similarities than, than there are differences in those two, our two cultures. Yeah, yeah, I was noticing that as well. I mean, when I was growing up, you 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 didn't call adults. You you called adults Mr. and Mrs. Period the end. Mm-hmm. But if you were close to them, if you were close family friends, then they were Aunt Betty or Uncle so and so. You know, mm-hmm. um, and and so it sounds to me like it's a very similar thing. Yeah. Oh. Well, we talked a little bit about uh, children and divorce, but what about the economic status of women? Um, that is a large question. <laughs> As, and I think it's it's a large question in whatever country um you 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 talk about um i think again i think you do have to you do have to like answer that question in different parts because you you talk about the economic like women and you know and their economic opportunities in the in large cities and then you also talk about those same opportunities if they're in a second tier city or a third tier city and then you talk about um women who are in rural villages or who are um from the countryside and so i think i think it's a larger question i do think that there is um a lot of in- inclusiveness and i think britain is was correct in sort of her her observation and that you see women in sort of quote unquote less um genderized roles um but that being said i think it is still difficult for women to navigate finding to navigate having a career and having a family and again i think that's a an issue that um we can all as women like relate to even even in the united states um and then you talk about you know china's what they call left behind women and these are women who have know you know gone to get their phds or have become lawyers or have maybe chosen their careers but then that means that once they're 27 28 29 that they're really kind of too old now they're too old to consider to have a family or settle down or have children and so no they're like they're almost seen as undesirable um and so that has been a a trend an issue that's going on in china it's been about it's been that for about 10 years now um but you see you see some some signs of that changing and um, women who are standing up to that um, stereotype and you have like the vagina monologues that go on in China um, and you have more and more left behind women who, who stand up for themselves and say, no, like I am a career woman, but I'm also beautiful and I am desirable. And just because I'm 26 doesn't mean that I can't settle. I can't find love. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting. So I'm also actually curious then if, if part of the, that rationale uh, for them has to do with what is the infrastructure for them to help raise that child. So if you moved outside the countryside, if we maybe say apples to apples here in Seattle to or New York or uh, Los Angeles to Shanghai and Beijing, then you don't have maybe mother or another uncle or aunt to help take care of them. And is there a system in place such as uh, babysitting that we here, have here in the States to support that? I mean, a lot of the people I work with have their children in some kind of care after work because both parents are, are working. So I, I'm beginning to believe that maybe there, again, is, there's more of a similarity based on what is that infrastructure post-work or while you're at work, pardon me, and then you have that time in between traveling because, you know, uh, a lot of people there appear to live in apartments 
but then you would see a large number of people either on scooters or on the transit system trying to go to and from. So I, I'm just curious if those who are successful to have children are doing it because they have a support system versus uh, them trying to do it on their own, and then it becomes beyond just the um, a, a suitable male looking and saying, ooh, you're just not you're not going to be suitable, you're getting too old. It, it looks like it would have multiple parts, the uh, economic sector section of it, and then the support system, which has been mm-hmm. a big problem here in the States. I think in, in big cities you'll find that um, a lot of families uh, tend to have nannies, um, so they're, they're kind of um, sort of like in-house um, help that will help, you know, take care of the house as well as the children while the parents are working. Um, and then the way that the school systems work, um, I mean, children like start like pre-K and kindergarten, elementary school, um, just like they do in the States. And so so they do have school and, they, and I'm not entirely sure about the hours for like a, a kindergarten, but I know for elementary school, they might go to school around like seven, eight o'clock in the morning, and then they'll be done around like three or four um, p.m. So, so there. Is, so I think in terms of the structure, I think school um, does provide that um, that cover for families. And then in the rural countryside, um, a lot of schools end up becoming boarding schools. So as young as elementary school. Um, like some elementary schools are also boarding schools um, just because the students so far away from the schools, they have no time to, to walk two hours back and forth. Um, and then middle school is also a boarding school. So um, that, that, that provides um, some, some support in terms of structural infrastructure. When I lived in China, I lived in one of those 35 story tall high rises. And on the third or fourth floor, there was a daycare or some kind of early mm-hmm. elementary school learning center. And I don't know that much about it, but that might have been something to fill in the gaps outside of school time. Hmm. That might explain why we, we saw there, there was a, a real uh, missing, those those children, those school-age children were missing in our observations. I you did the same thing I did. And, and walk through to some of those neighborhoods, but right around three three thirty, you would see large number of students exiting school, and and there were because there were no, uh, you know, school buses like we see in the rural area here. A lot of kids were getting on the the bus system. So I I was lucky enough to start observing some of that population. But I, I would say, in agreeance with you, uh, Heather, I didn't see a lot of quote unquote teenagers. They were seemingly um, fifteen and under. And then there were the college age. They're um, in school all day. So especially middle school and high school, um, they actually usually like, they they kind of like stay at the school. I don't know about cities because I worked in a, I worked in a village, but typically their hours are that they'll have class in the morning. um, They call it like 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 morning reading. And that might be from like about six 30 to seven, 10. And then they have breakfast and then they have class in the morning from like around eight to 1130. And then they have lunch. And then um, in the middle school, they might have like a nap time incorporated into their day, but then they have their afternoon classes from around one to four, probably one to five, um, and then they have dinner and maybe another extra hour for sort of personal, like, you know, fitness or, um, you know, kind of extra playtime. And then they usually have evening classes that go from, like, 7 to 10 p.m. Um, so, and then it only gets more rigorous in high school as they're preparing for, for the Gaokao, but it's also just as rigorous in middle school because in middle school they have to take something called the Zhongkao, which is the high school entrance exam. Um, and that's a really critical point for a lot of students in China, especially in the rural areas, because in order to score well and go to a good high school, you have to you have to pass this this first Zhongkao. Um, so that's probably why you didn't see them walking around. <laughs> we had a very interesting conversation with one of our tour guides about education and the educational system in uh, China. But what I found out um, when I uh, the last day I was there, we were able to spend it with my daughter's friend Nick in Shanghai. And when I was telling Nick or asking him questions about some of the things that the tour guides had said, he would just kind of laugh and go, no, that's not it. <laughs> that's not the case. So I'm not sure how much um, 
we got from the tour guides, Dennis, that was factual and how much of it was just, you know, their 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 perspective or propaganda. Pers- or propaganda. Okay, great. Yeah. Propaganda. Well, considering cameras um, everywhere, we, they probably had to be very careful about what they said also. <laughs> Sure well, the one tour guide, picture. I think it was James, actually said, I was asking him questions about education, and he was trying to, str- he was kind of struggling with an answer, and I thought he was struggling because of the language barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he said something about that he could get in trouble, that the bus driver could turn him in for saying right, something. Right. What was, do you remember yeah, your question? And, and so, you know, it was kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> And then one of our party came up to me afterwards and said, stop asking so you many questions. You're either going to get yourself in trouble or somebody else in trouble. And I went, oh, okay, sorry about that. Um, right. But, but again, the, the, I think we – go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say um, I think we, we laugh about it, but I think it's also something important to remember about about China is that, again, it's – it's run by a single party authority, the Chinese Communist Party, and and they have been cracking down on on freedom of you know freedom of information, freedom of the press. They've been cracking down on what people you know tweet on their like Weibo's or what they blog, and it's a it's an issue. It's a concern. And when you're working for a tour group that may have been um, you know or, organized by 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 the party, then then there are controls placed into what they can and cannot say um and they are subjected to they are subjected to the party and and that's something that is a reality and that's something that you um experience pretty interesting i'm interested to hear what your question was to him well i didn't think i was asking terrible questions i mean uh he was saying that um the government provides education up to nine years the first nine years but that families that can afford it don't want their kids to go there. They want them to go to the private schools. And I said, well, so far, that's pretty much the same as in America. You know, the people who can afford it try to channel their children into private schools rather than the, the public schools. And, I, and he's, he was referring to talent. He kept saying talent. And I was questioning, did you mean like song, dance, acting talent, artist talent, or do you mean like intellectual firepower? Um, and so I was questioning about that. You know, I mean, are you talking about, you know, how smart you are academically, or are you talking about whether you have a particular talent when it comes to art or whatever? Um, I also questioned that if uh, the students who could not afford uh, private school, were they then kind of destined to not go to the better schools for middle school and high school and college, and he said, no, that, that the best students, the most talented students are, in fact, recruited by all schools. And so, I, you know, I mean, the, the answers that he was giving me sounded like, well, that's pretty much the way it is here in, in the United States. Um, yes, it I, is I, I, I viewed isn't. it more as a probe, and then the response seemed to yield a similarity to the state's. But I think one of the biggest differences between the United States and China's education system is that um, even though both countries have compulsory education laws, it's not as enforced in China. So yes, like it's they say that you have to go to school um, for nine years, and that's at the end of their middle school. Um, but it's it's not enforced, and you know, teaching at a, a rural middle school often what you'll end up finding is that um, a lot of students don't make it to ninth grade. A lot of students don't, they might graduate notionally, like in the books they haven't, they haven't really, um, in, the, in the books they graduated, but like that doesn't mean that maybe they were attending classes the entire time. The problem is that the enforcement of getting students um, and getting family members to, to believe that their students, um, you know, should graduate middle school um, is difficult, especially in the rural side, countryside. And then you talk about talent if, um, Students in China are told at a very young age they're ranked since elementary school about how how much where they rank in their grade. So they're told at a very young age what their capabilities are. And so you know you get to a certain point where a family has to really question: Is it worth investing in your education, even that you're a poor student, or do or should the students start to work? Um, and that's a really real question for a lot of families in 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 China. So it sounds like a lot of what I'm hearing, your observation in the rural area, parallels the way I grew up, uh, say, a generation before me, or two generations before me, 
So there could be maybe a 50 to 75-year gap between uh, the rural areas, methods of education versus what we see here Western world today. Because when I grew up, I'm sorry, prior to my growing up, it wasn't, uh, at my grandparents' age, for instance, it wasn't uncommon to see someone in the rural area say, hey, look, I've gotten up to a certain grade, maybe 7th, 8th grade. We need to drop out because your hand is needed on the farm. Versus by the time I grew up, uh, the farm had already dissolved for the most part. So uh, your focus changed back to education. And what is your future? Mm-hmm. And I think the large, the larger issue, um, especially when it comes to the education system, is really just like it's this ranking system. It's this like level of of self worth that you are told you're told what your worth is at a very young age, and so it it complicates things. And and then on top of that, you don't really have like this the state necessarily providing a strong backing to make sure that their that their children are staying in school. So I know in the United States you have to be in school up till age 16 and I think if you're not in school like you can you, the police will will get you like you you will be detained and you will be told to go to school or you will um well, the parents, like, but your parents serious, will be told, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah that's what happened when I took my niece in is I got told I would be put in jail or have to go to court if she didn't go to school. Exactly, and yeah. I think you don't find that level of sort of like like state responsibility to make sure that their students um, are there uh, as much as you do in in the states versus China. Well, let's ta- let's move a little bit uh, and talk about race, Dennis. Um, we, we were all we started. We, can I share your 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 nickname here, Dennis? Uh, we <laughs> we started calling Dennis Hollywood because <laughs> <laughs> because everywhere we went. People were the people in China were stopping Dennis and wanting a picture with him, and mm-hmm. I was sitting there going, "Okay, is this because you're really look good looking, large, you know, Hollywood looking man, Dennis, or is this because you're a black man?" Well, it was interesting. It, it, it felt very different. I, I have a, I grew up in the South, and I went to school in Utah. Point zero eight percent black when I first went there. And at that time, if you talked to me up to 19 years old, I would say there were two different forms of racism here in the United States, an overt racism and one that was kind of, uh, hmm, was found your face, but then just don't date my daughter. And then you go to China, and I'm not knowing what to expect, and see that people have seemingly this, this curiosity. It took probably four days, if not six, for me to figure out who do they think I am. And then one gentleman came up and asked a question, do you play basketball? And my my natural gut said, can't you see I'm not quite tall enough? But then I forget, the average person there is still shorter than me. <laughs> now, there were people, including girls, who were taller than I was. And then the next thing I know, he grabs my arms and, and squeezes them and says, NFL? <laughs> so then again, I'm laughing, thinking, doesn't he realize this is the season? But maybe I'm a retired player to him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, you're still in the cars was, now, Dennis. That's what you did. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so it was interesting that it didn't feel uh, – I didn't feel uh, – when I think of racism, I think of, of selecting a group of people and saying you don't get the same rights or, or stay away from this and that. Whereas there I felt you were kind of observed as almost an alien, but the, the curiosity of this alien. Can I? Can, a lot of people were actually touching me, and I think at one point that, that kind of frustrated <laughs> my lady. She's like, keep your hands off. But yeah, I think it was like, absolute <laughs> curiosity. <laughs> and there were times it's like, well, I told my mom, I said, you know, for a few days you feel like you are something special rather than something that's objectified and, and looked at <laughs> in a negative sense. So my view there was very different than the view I had here in the States when I go to isolated areas, which is very common for me to go to places, say, a race weekend, and I'm the only person that looks like me. But in that mm-hmm. family of racers, we we put aside all that silliness, but you can go into the neighborhoods and people will still kind of get you odd. And then my situation was compounded by the fact that my, my lady is white and I'm black. So mm-hmm. I think there was a, a matter of curiosity of people looking, and then the little children, you separate again, the little children will look because, okay, this looks come like maybe a cartoon character, something different. Why is this color different? And with children, you always have to separate that from uh, someone who has at least different levels of thinking. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was beautiful to see that the parents were supportive of me uh, interacting with the kids rather than taking the kids and trying to pull them away, which you would see here in the States years ago. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, we saw that in general, I think, because we were taking lots of pictures of the children, and they were all very welcoming. But I think, I mean... I, I was trying to figure out, you know, because when I would look at children and smile at them, these children were, I mean, they would kind of do the hiding behind the mom's face and peeking around and looking at you like, what the heck is this, you know? So I <laughs> that saw that true. for myself as well, Dennis. Um, so I don't know. So, Rachel, what what's the deal there? Well, I think the the idea of, there, uh, the idea of race is a, a very weird concept to, to Chinese because they – but when they asked me, when they asked me, oh, like what's, um, you know, what's like, um, excuse me, I'm like blanking on the word, um, minorities. Like, what's your like, where are your minorities in America? And in America, when we talk about minorities, we talk about Asian Americans, African Americans, you know, Latinos, and 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 in China, the idea of 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 ethnic is that a lot of them are that they're they're minority ethnic, so they're all, they're a Han, and then there's, like, levels of, like, Chineseness about it, but they're generally all in there, and, like, especially in, in, the, in the mind of the government, is that they're all viewed as being Chinese, inherently Chinese, and so you, so the I guess, different concept of race in, in China is just different, because everyone sort of is a, a brand of, quote-unquote, Chinese to them, and then I think, so, so it gets it gets complicated, and and the way that the way that the Chinese Communist Party has handled um, ethnic groups in China has has long been contentious. And um, although they although certain minority groups um, have really thrived, and their their cultures have thrived, and and they really hold on have held on to their their dialect and and their culture. Um, you have other groups like you know like the Uyghurs, and you have other groups um, like the Tibetans who who really struggle in in maintaining their um, their culture, their language, um, and and you 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 see that being you see that being contested um, daily in in China. But I think something else that I kind of wanted to pivot in and talk about is um, is I think the concept of of African Americans in China I think is is also really interesting because there is large um, African groups. I think you see a lot of Kenyans down in Guangdong um, and Guangzhou area. And so um, it's really, it's really interesting, but I think, I think generally whenever um, Chinese view an an African American person and and I've witnessed it uh, with two of my friends um, is that they either think that they're related to president Obama or Kobe Bryant, um, which is. (laughs) 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 You mean there are more? There's only two bloodlines in the entire world. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty great, and it's funny because I'm I'm mixed, so I'm I'm half Taiwanese and half American, and and I, I look generally Asian, and and I I speak pretty decently, and I actually one time it was when I was studying, but I had two friends who you know were blonde hair, blue eyes, and the other one was brunette and pale skin, and there people were taking photos with them, and I had one child like literally shoved me aside and was like, I want pictures. She was like, there's more. And she's like, I want pictures with them. And like shoved me aside, like gave me her camera. and was like, take a photo for me. And I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So Britton, you had some experiences with uh, some of your friends and when it came uh, to racial differences in China, didn't you? You, I think you were telling me a a couple of. Yeah. And, and in American terms, it sounds really, really horrible to repeat it, um, I guess, with, like, the American lens. But, um, like, the rest of your experiences that you've described, I don't think there is the same level of racism that's intended to be hurtful or uh, discriminatory in any way. But one day one of my friends uh, and I were you know, we were just walking by some billboards and talking about, you know, like, white people in China. Because where I lived in China, I was very much the only non-Chinese person. Um, And he turned to me and he said, well, don't you think black people are ugly? And I was absolutely mortified that he would say something like that. And, and, I I was a little abrupt at telling him that that was not something you could say in English, um, and he apologized and said that he didn't he didn't mean it to be rude. He just 
didn't... Coming from that standpoint of curiosity? Is that um, what he was he, trying to do? I think he was just saying that the color of the skin didn't photograph well. Ah, so he was using... And, okay. And, I mean, I don't want to be rude or offend anybody by repeating this, um, but it was a really interesting comment because I think if somebody had said that in America with an American context, there'd be a lot of hate behind that and a lot of animosity and probably a lot of anger. But the way it came from him, it was just a general observation from his objective perspective, but not really a comment about the person's worth or um, the way that we should treat other people. Well, I've noticed that with my uh, uh, a Chinese friend that, that I have from who lives in America, and I, I sometimes I'm just kind of gobsmacked by how abrupt his comments are, you know, like um, uh, as far as, you know, he, he and, and it doesn't seem to come from, uh, you know, like, well, you're, you're too fat, you know, or something like that, whereas we would never say that. So, Rachel, are these comments just kind of, are they based in the fact that we have to convert language or is it just a cultural difference in how, um, we come out and say things rather than in America where we tend to couch things in other terms. But you know, what 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 is going on here in your view, Rachel? I think it is a cultural difference. And as I mentioned before, um, the concept of race is not something that that the average Chinese person like has to deal with. When when you are in China and you go from the north to the south, like generally um, everyone again like looks Han Chinese. Um, whereas in the United States, you know you. I I live in Washington D.C. and I see all like colors and walks of life here, and and we really uh, benefit from um, living in a very like multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial um, communities and societies, and it's it's really just not that diverse in China. And so so one, they just never really encountered a moment where where they're walking around and they're seeing all different types of of races and all different types of people. Um, so I think. So part of it is just, I think you're right, Britain, in terms of like it's like having an American context versus a Chinese context. Um, and then in terms of the very abrupt questions, in terms of asking if someone's fat or if they're too skinny or something, I think that is a very cultural thing. They're just not necessarily sensitive in that way. And I can attest to it because my mom always, you know, will time and t- will now and then tease me or like call me fat or be like tell me that I need to lose weight or something. And it's. Yeah. It's kind of <laughs> all moms do that, I, okay. <laughs> oh, I I should but, also um mention too about the the color of the skin in China um very very pale skin is considered very desirable and in America we often purchase products to make ourselves look more tan. In China people will purchase product women mostly will purchase products to bleach their skin so that they look more white. Well, we have uh, uh, American uh, black women who will do that, though, too, still, don't, don't we? Well, I mean, like, I mean, Chinese people usually have very fair complexions to start with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I think so, Rachel, That just goes what, to general. Go ahead. Uh-huh. Go oh, ahead, Rachel. That's just, uh, one of it does just go to general, um, again, sort of like, his, like history and socioeconomic background you know it's like you saw in in europe as well where if you were a peasant you're working on the field you had darker skin so it's a sign of 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 being you know of of the lower class of being a worker whereas if you were in the upper class you were like indoors and learning how to read latin or something and so you found the same thing in chinese society i mean that same sort of concept existed in in ancient chinese like during the empire systems and then um and and that sort of like that it's like the idea of beauty in China is definitely that of, of that sort of like pale skin because it's like exudes like a, a level of like regalness, um, but but I think you do see something and you you see in China as well where like the difference between a peasant or a a, a kid who grew up in the farm who has really dark versus um, you know a child in Beijing who like doesn't really have to spend that much time in the sun or will like wear sun protection or something, so. Yeah. So I'm looking at our clock, and I'm going, wow, where did this time go? Um, let's try and wrap this up. Dennis, what are you leaving uh, or taking away with you from your trip to China about um, gender and race 
in that country versus ours or similarities what what are what are you leaving with that are you there dennis Oh, here, I'm sorry. I think if we set aside yeah. politics, <laughs> Hello, it's, interesting to see, <laughs> it's interesting to see that there is a, uh, a, a interest in sitting down and getting to at least have some interaction, and I did not expect that. Uh, race-wise, I left there feeling more comfortable than I have here in the States because I think there was a natural curiosity rather than a, a polarization. And so that left me a lot happier having gone because now I know Anything that I've gone into their thinking uh, is not necessarily what is truth. And having been married to someone who was Korean, um, and having their mother, her mother, being very hesitant to get to know me, I found that the older ladies there, I wasn't in their family, but at least was a <laughs> yeah. curiosity to interact. So that left me yeah. very, it was a very positive tone. Great. Britton, your experience there was longer than, than Dennis's and mine. What did you bring home with you uh, when, when we talk specifically about China and race and gender? One of the things that I really learned when I was in China was that the way that we learn about China and America isn't very accurate because we learn about Chinese politics. Yeah. But if you were only to learn about American politics and the role of the president in the U.S., you would have a very different idea of what America is. And China, just like America, is made up of a lot of really individual people with a lot of very different ideas. And they might be united by this culture and they might be ruled under a specific political party at this time. But everyone at at their very core is still human and, um, like Dennis said, very curious about the world and... Um, you don't really get a lot of that understanding when you're just reading about what comes out of China. Yeah. Okay. Rachel, sum it up for us. You obviously have extensive experience in both cultures. What are what are your feelings about race and culture when we're talking about China? I think I'll start off with just how you talk about China I think is important and I always I always err that everyone should you should separate the people and the culture from the government um, because they are they are two completely different entities. So you have the Chinese Communist Party and you have the people of China. And it's really interesting that Britain said that the way that we learn about China in the United States is really all about politics because I, I I kind of disagree. I think there is uh, one. I think there is a lack of understanding in exactly how the Chinese Communist Party, um, you know, weaves itself into the society of of China. And I think that needs a little bit more attention. But I think when it comes to when it comes to women, when it comes to gender in China, um, I think what we're going to find moving forward is that as you know, as China continues um, to grow and as the people of China continue to grow and grapple with um, with how to define themselves and how to define their communities, I think we're going to see, and we're seeing it now, that there's going to be some some strain, I think, between the government and the people. And you see that with um, the you know, the detention of, you know, women activists in China. And, you know, these are women activists who are not, they're not advocating for an overthrow of the party or anything. They're simply calling, calling out that women in China, you know, as in terms of its society are being looked down on. There are certain um, inequalities that exist between a man and a woman. But what happened is that why, why were they then detained? They were detained because they were speaking out against it. And, and that caused the Chinese communist party to be, to get nervous. They don't want any sort of like assembly kind, um, even if it's for women's rights or, or anything. And so I think that's what we're going to see moving forward is that as, as these societies and communities in China continue to grapple with, you know, with the same issues that we grapple with in America, you know, when it comes to um, when it comes to women's rights or race um, or socioeconomic, what does it mean to be in poverty or those um, who who earn a lot of money? And and as China grapples with it, communities grapple with it. How they react, how the Chinese Communist Party reacts to that, I think, is something that um, that the world needs to watch. 
I think these are interesting observations, and I thank you, all three of you, for joining us. Um, I thought the trip was delightful, and the, what I left with was that we're not all that different. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So um, thank you for joining us, and thank you for your observations, all of you. And um, I'm going to end the show with a quote by a gentleman named uh, Santosh Kumar Kalawa. He's a Nepalese who lives in Finland, and he's a computer guy. Uh, so interesting conversation or interesting observations from him. He says, Asia is an entertainment, Europe is a dream, America is an imprisonment, and the rest is a nightmare. Thank you so much for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. Thank Way. you, Heather. Thank you. Thank you.